Welcome to episode 6 of the ATD in the D Today podcast. I'm your host, Michael Haynes, chapter president for ATD Detroit. Summer is heating up, so we're going to cool everyone off with a chill conversation about the world of instructional design in the academic setting. In this episode, I sat down with two training professionals from local universities to chat about what it's like to improve performance and drive development for their learners, professors, and other faculty members in higher education institutions. You'll hear that conversation and more right after this. ATD Detroit would like to thank one of its partnering sponsors, Intrepid Learning. Intrepid empowers organizations to solve high-stakes business challenges through engaging, collaborative, and applied learning at scale. Find out more about what they can do for you at intrepidlearning.com. This month's episode is all about academic learning and instructional design. Many of us are experienced trainers and learning specialists working within a traditional corporate or business environment. But what you may not know is that the academic world also has its own set of learning and development needs and personnel. I'm here talking today with two learning professionals from two of Michigan's many institutions of higher learning about how the instructional design and learning industry works within the academic sectors. We've got Gwen Tarbox, Professor and Director of the Office of Faculty Development within WMUX, and Nick Bongers, Senior Instructional Designer at Oakland University. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thanks, great to be here. So let's start off with Gwen. Could you just introduce yourself a, a minute and just tell us kind of what you do at WMUX? Well, WMUX is a new entity within Western Michigan University. It was established in February 2020 with the goal of bringing together the Faculty Technology Center, Instructional Design, the Office of Faculty Development, and all of the extended university programs that we offer at Western. Um, this is really the first year that we are, are going full steam ahead with this because obviously the pandemic happened about two weeks after we were uh, we formally announced that we were starting up. I just joined as the director of the Office of Faculty Development um, this month. Really, I will join in three weeks, but I'm sort of doing it already. Um, but prior to that, I was involved with two initiatives in WMUX. The first was our faculty champions um, group that we put together at the beginning of the pandemic to help our faculty colleagues move their courses online. And the second was the um, steering committee for the Office of Faculty development as we move to transition it fully into WMUX. So that's sort of what I've been working with for the last year and what I do at Western. Great. And Nick, how about you? Thanks, Mike. I uh, have been an instructional designer at Oakland University since 2008. And right before uh, the pandemic started, we grew to an instructional design team, whereas before that, I was an instructional designer of one for our uh, enrollment, which is about 20,000 uh, students. So um, I was able to hire a full-time instructional designer that reports to me. And um, our priority is basically helping the online faculty if they're part of an online program. But of course, you know, before that we were extending my services out to the entire campus. Um, our, my, my instructional designer was reporting to me for one or two weeks before the campus closed. So she got to move into her office and then, you know, promptly move out. Uh, but it's, it's been great. And, um, you know, we, to, to basically put in a nutshell, what we do as instructional designers is if a faculty 
is transitioning their course from a face-to-face -face format to an online format, we help them conceptualize that. At many universities, they do that development for them. Um, before the pandemic, we were kind of teaching them how to fish, um, giving them the skills and the tools to do it themselves. Um, in this day and age where everybody's just kind of got forced into that role. However, for, for online programs where branding is important, consistency is important, that user experience is important, we get together with the heads of departments to um, focus on the consistency of the design among courses in that program, but also ensure course quality and even uh, accessibility uh, with regards to online accessibility. Wow, and I'm, I'm very excited to find more about everything both of you have talked about. And it's, I know we can all understand kind of the, the craziness of the last year and a half, but to, to jump into a new position or new initiative uh, and have a week of it before you have to change everything is pretty dramatic and really fascinating. So um, it will be interesting to see how kind of how you develop things for both of you. Um, and also, you know, for, for everybody listening, you know, a lot of us in the traditional corporate world, I'll, I'll use that term, I guess, you know, we, we, we often get to make trainings and work on developing trainers themselves, like train the trainers. But it sounds like what you two do is the ultimate of train the trainers, where you're taking faculty, academic faculty, and helping them teach better in the academic perspective. So, you know, lots of stuff to unpack here in this conversation. So I'm really excited to kind of jumping into that. Um, but before we get to kind of the details of, of what you, you all do, can you share a little bit about how you both got into this area of the field? If we could start with uh, Gwen, go ahead. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of English, but I've always had a deep interest in instructional design. Um, when I was a graduate student at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Purdue University, I was fortunate enough to be part of the um, committee that helped to establish a center for teaching and learning at Purdue. And as part of that work, I was really trained right from the very beginning in best practices in teaching in the academy. But I also was trained well in rhetoric and writing studies, which is all about audience. Um, and that's one of the most important um, pieces of information that I took away with me. So really for the last 20 some years, I have been experimenting with my teaching. I started on the board at the Center for Teaching and Learning at WMU when I joined in 1999. And from that point onward, I've been deeply involved in teaching and learning, but really what has been so wonderful over the last 10 years or so is to see the growth of instructional design as a formal position at the institution. We currently have five instructional designers plus a faculty technology specialist, um, and we will have some more people um, coming in with us to, to continue that work. And what's, what's exciting about that is these are folks who come to us um, who really understand things like what Nick was talking about, that continuity across courses and the importance of that. So my training was really in my discipline and in my sort of courses I taught. What I'm being exposed to now and what my colleagues have the benefit of really um, tapping into is this incredible work that our instructional designers do, not just with things like, you know, the externals of a course, or even some of the best practices of putting it together visually for the students or the end user, 
but the content. Um, I just finished working with one of our instructional designers on a course I'm teaching where I've ended up doing a collaborative annotated bibliography with my students. And it's been an eye-opening experience and I would never have thought of doing that on my own. Um, and so I come at this from both the perspective of a user of instructional design and now as someone who is going to be working closely with instructional designers to help my faculty colleagues. Um, my, my path to instructional design was a bit odd as well. And, you know, going back to, to high school, I did something as an independent study that was exactly instructional design. And I had no idea that's what it was, but basically in 1996, we had a gateway 2000 computer and, um, they purchased something called authorware and the tutorial to learn the software was, um, uh, put together this learning module that was interactive on how first responders address someone that um, might be having a heart attack. And they said like, load this video, paste this text, make this quiz, it fed you everything. It was all template stuff. And I spent the whole semester making this huge, basically online learning course. Um, although back in the nineties, it was an EXE file that you would install on your PC and, and run it off the hard drive. But I basically did that for a semester thinking this is graphic design. And I went to undergrad um, uh, with, with art and I became a graphic designer and I loved graphic design so much I wanted to be faculty. Um, I earned a master's degree as an online student. So the art institutes had an online master's degree and from 06 to 08, I uh, earned a master's degree online while I was teaching as an adjunct uh, graphic design instructor and working full-time as, as a graphic designer. So I, I had a full plate, but um, in the midst of all that, I found my job at Oakland as an instructional designer. And part of the, the strong skills that I brought to that table was knowing what that other side of the desk looked like. You know, as a discriminating student in a master's program for online, I was able to quickly be pragmatic, say what worked, what didn't work, and be informed from that side. But also the face-to-face -face teaching experience that I had just made me a really good fit. Um, combined with just knowing how graphics work online, um, you know, what's pleasing to the eye. And one of the, one of the big distinguishing differences between an artist, like a fine artist and a graphic designer is that a lot of fine artists say, well, my work is different. You wouldn't understand me, you know, like everybody prides themselves on being so like unique or so, you know, kind of, you know, pigeonholed, whereas graphic design, you want everybody to understand what it is you're showing, like if you're selling it, if you're doing it, like you want, you want the widest variety of people to understand exactly what you're portraying visually. And instructional design is a lot like that. You want to appeal to a mass audience and have everybody learn the stuff you're trying to communicate. So I, I bring a lot of those skills to the table and now having done it, you know, since 2008, I'm super happy in my role. I could like, I've, I tell people I've got the best job in the world because I get to work with people that value your opinion, they listen to you and you, you come up with this really great product that, you know, has this ripple effect, you know, people learn and they pay it forward and they, they remember things just because of the effective way that you communicated the learning. Nick, I, I have to jump in here because my, one of my fields is comic studies and my job really is to try to translate comics 
um, to um, a lay audience really and try to explain what's happening in them. Um, I in fact mainly teach children's and young adult comics and I'm obsessive on my sites like my chorus sites especially about just that thing about visual like not only like beautiful visuals but visuals that people can understand. Someone walks in they look at that page you know exactly what it is so maybe there's something about those of us who love art but also really want it to convey a message or at least really want to get to those messages that kind of are drawn to this sort of career too i find that interesting yeah and uh within pedagogy or the the science of learning there's all these different variants to get people to learn so now children are learning about history through comics or they they um they made a bible that's like a comic book bible where you actually see these stories and they it's all illustrated or even hip-hop pedagogy where they um you know it's all based on you know spoken word but you know even like hamilton you you could look at that as hip-hop pedagogy so there's like there's all these variants of learning now that just make it just it just blew the door wide open. Yeah, and you know what's what's fascinating is the very first group that I read about in terms of excuse me comics being used outside of sort of the enjoyment of children was the army using them during World War Two to convey information to a large population of young people who were doing some life or death work. And they felt that comics would be the best way to put that forward. So it's kind of interesting how that science yes. of learning and visual stuff just goes together. Yeah, and um, within the, the realm of art history and graphic design history, the Russians did the exact same thing during World War II. They called it Russian constructivism and um, very like poster designs that were, they had like a, a family on the dinner table and they're pouring oil out of like oil pots into their cups and stuff and kind of like to support the war effort kind of thing. But it was a homeland kind of like just, just, the, just the visual impact of things and how that, how that can come through even, even within an online course is just so powerful if you do it. I think this also speaks to the rise of gamification uh, as a method of learning. A, a, design um, especially just taking the behavioral psychology of games and things that we like for fun and hobbies and turn them into learning tools as well yeah so right before the pandemic happened we um, purchased a bunch of vr headsets and part of our task was figuring out what these could be used for in education and there is just a ton like if you if you think that these like oculus headsets and stuff are just for fun or just for kids you know there's there's all kinds of learning content in a 3D environment. You can go underwater and you can swim with like the largest whales. Um, you can use a calculator on a cannon to like sink a, 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 a sailor, uh, a ship, you know, based on how heavy the ball is and, you know, what angle to put the cannon at. And you can shoot at this, you know, wooden sailboat to try and sink it. There's all, and that's math, you know, but it's within this context that makes it really fun. Um, even within uh, our, our online course environment is called Moodle, and it's open source. Uh, a lot of corporations use it for training, but there's a badging system within Moodle where if a student accomplishes these certain tasks or if they do these certain things, they can be given a badge on their profile, and that says that they accomplished this skill. Um, as an instructional designer, I've expanded that to faculty where if they take my training, I can give them a badge that says that they took my training. So anybody that clicks on their profile within our online course environment, they can see kind of what trainings that they've taken. And it's it, like you said, it, it's leveling up and it's being it's like getting the little carrot or the, you know, the piece of candy at the end of the day. 
First of all, that is brilliant. <laughs> people like badges. Um, but, you know, just as another application for people listening who are thinking about ways that the academy can, can start to use these devices, our library did a wonderful job with our children's lit courses in terms of um, having someone come in and make a 3D um, site of a children's pop-up book, because we have a, a, a large collection in our archives of, of pop-up books. And Sue Story, who's our head librarian there, she she basically had this entire pop-up book that, was the, that came out into a circle, each page sort of photographed so that then students can wear these sets and go in and look at the art up close of this, this book. And of course it preserves the text because now we don't need to handle it, right? As much as we would have before, but it also gives the students that immersive experience like Nick was talking about. So there's, this is, you know, you're right, Mike, this is really the one of the waves of the future, um, turning learning into something that's tactile and exciting is really what we're trying to do. Yeah. And like, it doesn't just have to be in a classroom if it's employees that you're looking to train, whether it's a new piece of machinery or a new software, if you want to train on how, how to deal with your with your clients. Um, instructional designers can create these simulations where it's almost like a choose your own adventure book, but it's all buttons you click. So you're given a piece of information like, okay, you're you're in this scenario and this person walks up to you, what do you say first? And you can say hello, or you can say what your name is, or you can say, you know, something sarcastic or a joke, or how's the weather out there. Um, but based on you clicking that, they respond to you. And this, all of the responses are preset in this simulation. So um, you could end up rich, or you could end up dead in the simulation, or you could end up with 5 million customers. Um, but it's all built in the scenario. And as, as the learner, you can retake it and you can click on different things and see how that experience was different. Um, it, it translates to corporate just as much as it um, corresponds to education, but the, the outcomes and what someone is able to do as a result of taking these simulations or these, this learning um, is, is just the same. Like they, they accomplish something and the journey is different than if they'd have just read it out of a book or they just passed a test. Like this is interactive and engaging, and it's something that fits the needs of a lot of people today. I love that you both are talking about this because, for one, this is what I do, which is fun because I write, I design material for simulations, animations, 3D, uh, almost games for, for learning in a corporate environment. And so the point being is, oh, you guys are doing that too. Like this this concept that like it doesn't matter that you're that I'm in the corporate world quote unquote and you're in the academic world like instructional design principles are there you know in, in the the evolution of taking kind of child learning theory and realizing it's actually the same thing for most adult learning theory and that what we do for kids to learn can work for adults it's it's slowly kind of trickling into corporate world and again i don't mean anything by saying corporate i just you know kind of mean that that differentiation it's just fascinating. And I imagine as we keep talking, we're going to find more things. It's like, well, yeah, we do that. Everybody does that. This is, this is what instructional design is, no matter where you're doing it, right? Sure. And um, when when people say pedagogy, that peta is the child part of the learning. And now that's even gotten variants. So now they have andragogy, which is adult learning. And now there's even another variant called hudagogy. And that's self-directed learning. Instead of like the way that I like to separate it out, instead of saying like kids, kids learning versus adult learning versus whatever, I, I look at it more as what the learner brings to the table. 
So if someone has never changed a car tire before and they don't know what a wrench is, um, they're going to need pedagogy to, to know what the tire even looks like and where the lug nuts are. Like they, they're completely new to learning. But if they bring something to the table, like they've pumped their gas before, maybe they've seen a tire get changed before, they have experiences to bring to the table that might inform the different way that you explain it to that person. And then there's the people who think that they're, you know, quite handy and they can just, you know, go to the library and read about changing a tire, watch it on YouTube and know how to do it without um, needing the formal training. So all of these variants you could use in the same course or in the same training because they might know how to talk to a client or they might know how to do something, but it might be the situation that they need training about, or there's some kind of outcome that they don't know that you have to try and find the best way to teach them based on what they come to the table with. And I think our biggest challenge is when our colleagues, for me, my colleagues feel that these techniques it may interfere with their content. Um, prior to the pandemic, that was often what colleagues would say when they explained why they might not be a attending a particular training or why they weren't interested in incorporating a particular technology was their fear that in, in, in teaching the students the technology and getting them sort of up to speed, it would take away from content time. And so our challenge really when we're working in the field of in, in um, instructional design is helping our colleagues to integrate technologies into their course in a way that makes them understand that they're not going to be losing a lot of content that in fact, especially through active learning, right, um, students will actually retain more of that content. So there is some work up front and behind the scenes that has to happen, but the outcome almost always is positive. Students really remember the learning they do that's active. So I think if you're thinking, Mike, about, you know, the differences in our fields and, and the challenges that we face that might be a little bit different, um, that's the one that we work are working on the most in, in WMUX is, um, finding ways both to get faculty interested into these concepts and ideas, but then also um, helping them to do it in a way that is comfortable to them where they don't feel that they're losing a lot of that precious time that we have with our students. And if the pandemic has done anything positive in terms of instructional design, it's that I can tell you that right now, every single instructor on our campus knows our learning management system at a baseline. And so we now have somewhere to go from there as well, because we now have a shared vocabulary that we didn't have before. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bullseye right there. Um, the, the approach when the, the pandemic came was a great uh, distractor, but also a great compromise. So when in March, 2020, we didn't know how long we would be shut down for. And there was only a few more weeks left in the semester, like a lot of semesters end like in mid-April. So the, the message that everybody was able to jump on board with was just survive the rest of your semester. Take what weeks you have left and put them online, accomplish it however you can, and we'll see you in the summer. And everybody was like, okay, that, that I can do. There's only a couple of weeks left. But in the summer when it continued, there was a scramble to survived the summer. And that's when I started to twitch a little bit because best practices is different than survival. I, I, I can, the, the way that I kind of put it in analogies, I can teach you how to hunt a squirrel and make a fire, 
and eat the squirrel over the campfire, but I'd rather teach you how to set the table and put arrange the silverware in, in the right order and start with a salad and go to the soup, you know, have a main course and make sure that, that the dessert's ready at the right time and how to serve it and how to have a, a five course meal at your dinner table. Like in both scenarios, whether you're hunting a squirrel and eating it over a campfire, or having a really nice, elegant meal, you're going to eat. But one of them is the nice way to eat where everybody enjoys themselves. And the other way is like caveman survival. And which, if you were teaching an online course, which, which scenario would you rather subscribe to? That's a powerful analogy. I really like that. Not the squirrel. Right. <laughs> Gwen, what you had said, you know, it's that idea of like, it's, it's hard to change in general. You know, we find this all the time in organizational development and learning our whole field. doesn't matter what you do, you experience change resistance, you know, including ourselves. We might be resistant to using the next storyline version or a different, you know, method of teaching. Um, but Nick, like you're saying, you know, we were just forced to do it anyway. So sometimes being pushed in, uh, pushed off the cliff makes you fly a little more than, uh, choosing whether or not to do that. And one thing I'll say to people who are listening who are in positions like the ones Nick and I are in, um, we at Western, we did something I think that was super smart and I wanna do a hat tip to Ed Martini, my boss, because um, we came up with this faculty champions group of experienced online instructors who worked with the um, with WMUX to help our faculty colleagues. And we did that in a number of ways through one-on-one -on -one tutorials, um, recording workshops that people were able to attend live, but then watch later as well. And just in general, um, turning, we, we, we became really the go-between so that our poor instructional designers, and I'm sure Nick, you were feeling this, you know, who were just overwhelmed with requests for help, we were able to sort of deal with the lower level issues and then work towards um, getting answers from our instructional designers to help with the rest. And this is a model that I, I, I don't want us to let go of. Um, it's thinking about ways that faculty can help each other because very often hearing things from a peer, looking at their course, visiting them and that sort of thing can be really helpful. Yeah, and Gwen, we, we did the exact same thing when the, when the pandemic hit, we offer one-on-one um, -on -one appointment slots on a Google calendar. And if, if anybody out there has Gmail or if, you're, if your work email is powered by Gmail, you can have these appointment slots where you don't have to sit in an empty Zoom room waiting for somebody to log in to meet you. You can have them opt in and schedule you know, a one-on-one -on -one appointment slot. We were getting full and um, we were able to allocate funds to give stipends to faculty. And we had three faculty on board to take these one-on-one -on -one appointments. And if they were stuck, we'd jump in. But if they weren't, we would do other ID work while this was happening. Um, the IDs were responsible at our institution for coming up with a teaching plan and online. Like if you were a teacher forced to teach online, how would it work? What do you need? What do you do? Um, we were doing online workshops. You know, we big, big Zoom big Zoom meetings where I'm sharing my screen with a hundred faculty saying, okay, you know, take a breath, you know, we're going to get through this. This is how to, how to, how to get through it. So our faculty were very, were very um, important to taking the one-on-one -on -one appointments off of our hands. Um, now we have one, uh, we have, we started with three, but now we're down to one because it's starting to calm down a little bit, but it's, it's amazing when um, you feel like you're carrying the university on your shoulders a little bit. And it's, it was, it was nice to be, and again, shout out to my department. We're so tightly knit 
And there's enough overlap in what we're able to do that if somebody in support needed help, the ID team could step in with support or when ID team needed help, there are people in support that knew ID stuff. And the, the university was very you know supportive of, of how to continue classes online. And it was just, it was nice to be able to have the confidence to carry the university in that, in it. I, I couldn't have thought of a better department that would, would be able to take on the responsibility as, as good as we have. And um, now that I look back, I feel like my tolerance for, I don't wanna say tolerance for pain, but tolerance for workload has gone, has gone up where it's like those busy days that you had in 2018, those busy days you had in 2019, like they're nothing compared to 2020. So now I feel like my job is, is really great now because it's not quite as, as hectic and I know what, I know where my threshold is. Yeah, Nick, I'll, I'll add to that too. Uh, so full disclosure for everybody listening, I am a part-time lecturer at Oakland University. I teach a, a course there. Uh, and so I was actually a participant. I was one of the learners for one of Nick's uh, courses on quality of online teaching. And, you know, and I've always, I've been an early embracer of technology since I was, you know, since I was a kid, right, with the internet. And uh, the idea of, you know, hey, we're going to go teach online you know, it's, it's exciting to me in one sense, but also I really love teaching my course in person. It's an employee benefits course. It's very heavy material, uh, you know, teaching 20 year olds, the importance of retirement benefits, you know, you need to kind of be in person for some of that, st some of that stuff, but with and Nick, and I'd love for you to talk more about the courses you created. Um, it, the idea of, you know, here's a practice time to set up your course online. Think about how you're going to approach it. Like it, it was, train the trainer stuff, but it was very much instructional design for people who may not re realize they're instructional designers too in a, in a classroom setting. Yeah. And there's things that, again, there's a ripple effect to that experience. One is that when a professor takes an online course as a student, now they, they have the computer issues. They have the trouble turning things in on time. They have the personal the personal things that say, I'm not going to be in class this week. Um, and that develops empathy with their own students when that happens to them. So the, um, and across the board, the pandemic did bring a more humanist um, impression of faculty to students where, you know, in the traditional face-to-face -face classroom, I think the students view these professors as all knowing gods in their, in their chosen profession. You know, they're all knowing and they are the, you know, the sage on the stage and everything, but when they had to Are be you saying online, that's not true, Nick? Is that? <laughs> well, just in terms of teaching that in subject matter expertise, I'm sure that is very true, but it was funny that um, they seemed kind of untouchable to a lot of students, but once they go into Zoom or they go to online, now they become more human because, oh, they can't get their microphone to work or they, they forgot how to share their screen. And then a student turns on their mic and says, well, you have to click this button. And then there's um, there's more of that human elements to the online teaching that maybe you didn't have in the face-to-face -face environment. And it, even though it was all very electronic, it it made the students, you know, perceive their faculty a bit differently. Like they're at home, like maybe their coat closets in the background, or there's a dog running around and the professor is lecturing. Um, you know, maybe their their husband or wife walks by. Like it it makes you look at them like they're they're real people that live in a house and they're not just this, you know, this image that they have in their head. And I think the, the opposite is true too. 
I think faculty have learned a lot about our students based on what happens um, in synchronous learning, especially. You know, um, not all students have equal access to good, reliable Wi-Fi. I'm teaching a class this summer where two of my students regularly are sitting in minivans, you know, while joining class because that's they need to drive to somewhere where there's a stronger signal than what they have at home or they're at work and they need to go out into the parking lot because it's quiet there. You know, so I think as faculty, we've learned a lot too about our students and about the situations they face. You and I are at very similar institutions. We have a wide variety of student types and many of our students are non-traditional um, and who are juggling kids and other things. There's, I always really enjoyed this one class I taught last year where this one woman's kids would come in and get stuff out of the fridge and <laughs> sort of see her going, don't take that, take this. It just humanized the experience. Um, but actually that sort of, there's a leapfrog question that I have for both of you, um, especially Nick, I think, given what you do. And that is what your plans are uh, for taking some of the things we've learned um, during the pandemic and moving those things into the, the future of the university, because at least from our perspective and the reading we've been doing, it's clear that this experience has opened up um, a lot of people's minds about um, different modes of instruction. And there are certain things I think we don't want to lose uh, if we you know, move to a more back to a more face-to-face -face environment. So I'm kind of curious uh, as to some of the things you're thinking about um, in, in regards to that. Sure, um, and this is kind of a, like, if you were one of the upper administrators of the university, what would you do? <laughs> but uh, a lot of it is, is policy driven and anybody that's listening from the corporate world could probably agree with that um, based on what what they do. But the the training that I offer and like, you know, Mike is, uh, he participated in the quality online teaching certification course. It's a, it's a four week course that I teach, but faculty aren't required to take it. It's a, it's an incentive program. They get a thousand dollar stipend to successfully complete it. But when they do complete it, they have three weeks of their online course built already. And if they can do three weeks, they can do 16 weeks. And we focus a lot on consistency and they, um, they end up replicating the design that I do as they, as they're taking the course, they say, well, Nick designed it this way. I should do mine this way too. And that's done very, uh, very intentionally. So um, a lot of the faculty that come out of that think, oh, this is great. All the teachers that teach online should have to take this course. It's like, well, that's A, that's not up to me. And B, I, I like where you're going with it, but it's a policy. It's a policy thing. We, we had so much demand last summer to take this certification course that I had to open up more sections. So um, part of the, uh, the faculty champions that we had helped me actually participate in the discussions and grade and, and do things. And it, I wouldn't have been able to do it without them, but um, the importance of the, the online teacher certification course, just from, an, not from just from the experience perspective, but from the functional and the quality and the accessible um, end of it, got a lot more attention over the last year. And I think that the university roundly recognized that having all the faculty or as many faculty as possible that teach online have this foundational knowledge or experience as an online student um, to create something that's built on online best, pra best practices and know how to work with the instructional design team and have that, that open channel 
um, I think it did a lot to improve the quality of the online courses. And that, that doesn't translate as much on the front end, but it could transfer to the retention to the people that talk about Oakland University. Um, you want people to say, I took an online course at Oakland and we didn't miss a beat, or it was, it was easy to do. Um, so it's, it, it, was, it was great in terms of that. And I think that even if it's not faculty, that among their peers, they'll like even Mike, like he'll probably would, I'm not sure if he'd recommend my course or not. I'd like to think he would, but he would just say, you know, you should, if you're going to teach online, you should really take this because it's beneficial. And I would like it to not have to be policy because the, the fact that people want to take the class and that they heard from a, a colleague that it was great. Um, and when it fills up the way that it does, it, it makes me feel good about what I do and that, um, considering the demand and the popularity and the effectiveness of it, it doesn't need to be policy, but I, I could see it going that direction, you know, someday if, if that's what people wanted. And to speak on, you know, kind of the, the learner aspect of that in particular, um, I'll be honest, I took it because of the incentive. Um, I felt confident that I could teach online already being just a, a nerd, a tech person, you know, I was like, eh, I can do this. But then I applied myself and actually like cared about it and tried it. And not only just for the money, but and I, and, I, and I there was stuff I had no idea how to use on Moodle. I didn't even realize what I didn't know until I took it. And, you know, so in our field, you know, we really care about behavioral change, right? And having an impact that your, your learning actually changes the work behavior, the, the performance improves, the things carry on. And, and it, at least for me, and I, I, of course, I can't speak for all the other faculty who've taken the course. But for me, like, even when I go back to teach in person, I'm going to use Moodle as my shell for my course. I was already using it a little bit, but now I can really elaborate resources and materials on there, have more online aspects of the, of the course be there to supplement the in-person stuff. So even if I don't ever teach an online course again, you know, and if I only teach in-person, I'm still going to have what I learned from this course. It's changed my behavior um, as, a, as, a, as a lecturer. So I imagine that's that's going to be happening widespread. Regardless, you know, for Nick, what you've done, and Gwen, you know, the, the stuff your your team is working on, you know, we're trying to get behavioral change out of it. And even though we were in a way forced or or incentivized, whatever it took in the last year to to get this, I gotta imagine it, there's some great uh, cultural change and behavioral change happening because of what you guys are doing. Yeah, and that certainly for us um, extends into diversity, equity, and inclusion because we were able this year to do a lot more programming in that way and to we're now really weaving that into just our standard instructional design at Western on purpose. And so faculty who sign up because they have a need, right? They, they believe their material will best be expressed maybe partially synchronously or whatever mode they're interested in. We then have that opportunity to weave in other things that we have um, you know, really want to value and put forward as a university into that training. So it's, it's really an exciting time um, to be involved in instructional design because there's so many things that I think we, we now realize we can do, not just with the technology, but really with the whole philosophy of how we approach teaching and the student and the material. Um, and we now really have the attention of the university community because we were able to survive 
the pandemic, we have heard from our students that while it was a strange year and they really missed the socialization aspect of being with each other on campus, many students have you know, told us that surprisingly, they, they really enjoyed a lot of the aspects of their learning. And as we get more into hybrid instruction and then into face-to-face -face in the coming year, um, again, we really are hopeful that we're gonna take a lot of those things. Our goal really is when someone is going to teach a new prep that now they're just instinct is, well, let me contact WMUX or go to Help Hub, which is our, our hub to sort of enter into the system. And let's let's talk to someone. And even if they don't end up doing an incentive-based initiative, they they now know where to go. And I think that's been a really uh, an important takeaway. Yeah, we spent from 2017 to 2019 just doing a deep dive in our e-learning department on digital accessibility. So whether that's color contrast or uh, having text transcripts of your videos, having captions, and um, our popular saying that we have is it's essential for some, but it's beneficial for all. And I, I claim guilty there, like I like to fall asleep with the TV on and I don't like to have the volume all the way up and I just have the captions on and I can, I can, if I can't hear what they said, I can read it in the captions. Um, people with babies that are sleeping in the next room, they watch movies with the captions turned on. Um, and these are people that don't have disabilities, but it's, it's beneficial for, for those people. And um, whether it's having a legible font and not some weird scripty, whatever, um, there's all of these things you can learn from accessibility that just, just makes your learning clearer to everybody. And um, people that, that are listening to this that are, maybe aren't in education might benefit from, um, from digital accessibility things like WCAG 2.0, WCAG is the acronym. Um, and uh, Universal Design for Learning is UDL. But if you're in human resources or if you're into training, you could look into Universal Design for Learning and it'll give you these building blocks on how how people will learn um, based on these best practices. And like for, for me, step one, if I'm working with a faculty and I don't know about you, Gwen, but I look at some of these online courses and I see just a bunch of stuff. We call it info dumping. And the first thing that I do, like I'm not going to um, change what they're teaching at all, but I will just task them with, can you separate the need to know stuff from the nice to know stuff? And can you save the nice to know stuff on the side for context. So if a student says, well, I really want to get into this or I want to do this for my research, you can cherry pick something from your nice to know stuff and give it to them within the scope of their interest and it'll be more meaningful to them. Otherwise, the students will just think, oh God, I got to read all this stuff. But half of it is stuff that's, you know, just kind of on the perimeter and it's not, you know, essential to the learning. So just, just, be, just getting organized is kind of the first step and then you can go from there. Yeah, we have an editor now that actually highlights with the stop sign sort of symbol colors, um, everything that goes into our learning management system, and then you click on it and explains to you what the issue is. And boy, I found that to be helpful. And I thought I knew a lot about it. But I agree, you know, for me, maybe this is again, where our interest as 
people who are interested in visual theory is, you know, is residing. But when I, when my students click into a module in, in a course, I want them to almost be able to see visually what they have to do before they ever read anything. And that the way we set out our courses is important. And I'm sure that anyone listening who is in any industry understands that. It's sort of like what Nick said earlier. You just want to be able to see it and, and understand what it is that the teacher is showing you or the salesperson is showing you, whatever you want to understand that really quickly. And I think that's, that's part of the challenge. And that's really the thing about audience. You know, it comes back to really having an understanding of users of, of these learning management systems. And that's what we try and emphasize with our faculty. And they get it. I mean, I think you're right, Mike, you know, taking a class, I took a class a couple of years ago in comics online, just because I wanted to see how someone else was teaching the subject. And I learned so much about what I was doing wrong, <laughs> you know, as well as what I was doing right. So there is a real value in that. We've still got a lot more to talk about, but first let's take a short break and hear about some of the things going on at ATD Detroit. Here's how you can be involved with ATD Detroit. We have our monthly chapter meetings every second Tuesday evening of the month. These are interactive and engaging experiences, so they're more than just another webinar. Members of ATD Detroit and guests are welcome, although members receive a significant discount at all chapter events. Everyone is invited to our monthly online networking lunch times. Grab your lunch, turn on your microphone and camera, and join us for a break with conversation and fun. The monthly network events are free for chapter members and guests and take place around the middle of the month. The last week of every month is our special interest group week. We like to call these SIGs. Come be part of our networking and discussion with your local community of practice. Right now we have a SIG for those interested in facilitation, storytelling, and instructional design. These groups are free as an exclusive benefit to chapter members. You can find registration information and more details about these events and more at DetroitATD.org. One of the the issues it seems like you both are hitting on that I think really resonates with the more uh, corporate aspects of learning is um, this idea of human-centered design and focusing more on what the learner needs and the or the user, or the student, however you define it, what they need more than the designer or the faculty member, how much content they think you need. And so, um, it, you know, in in my, I'll say my world, I guess we could say, you know, the corporate setting, we're looking at ways of, of doing what you're already doing with this. How do we put the nice to know resources stuff aside and how do we focus on what they actually need on the job? Um, depending on what, it, you know, if it's a, you know, an actual like profession based job training, you know, what do they need to know on the line at the factory that one day, or what's the HR policy that affects them the most, and then try to give them supplemental resources. You know, we're still dealing with the info dump thing there. Mm. Yeah, the one of the, the the terminology wars that I run into um, with students is when a student says, I don't learn that way. And I think to myself, if you're a bachelor's student, you should be learning how to learn in multiple ways. Because if you get a job somewhere and they give you a stack of paper and you say, well, I, I don't get trained that way, like, well, then you're out of a job. So I think that students would benefit to learn from as many different ways as possible, whether it's face-to-face, -face, online, um, you know, what, what have you, because uh, 
and this kind of goes back to universal design for learning, if you can provide information in a variety of formats, the learner can use learning preference. So now learning style means I can only learn one way. And that's kind of silly. Learning preference means, well, if I have to read it, I'll read it. But if I can watch a video, I'll probably watch the video. Like that's, that's learning preference. Like I can learn both ways. So I want to position myself as a student that I can learn a variety of ways. So when I get my job, I'm prepared to learn whatever way they want to train me. And that should be the asset that students, and for some reason, I'm not sure if it's a generational thing or what, but they think that they, some, some think that they have this learning style where if it's not taught that way, they're going to struggle, but they should be putting more effort into learning uh, more different ways. And universal design for learning, I think, makes instructional designers more conscious of delivering content in a variety of formats. Almost like we all need to meet each other halfway, like designers need to be think thinking of multiple approaches and applications, but also some learners need to be thinking other ways to, to receive that information. Is that kind of what you're saying? Sure. And videos now that like within our system, if you upload a video to one of our systems, it, it, it auto generates a transcript. So if, if, a, if a student doesn't have 15 minutes to watch the video and they're a speed reader, they can read the transcript in five minutes instead of watching the 15 minute video. And um, maybe they were waiting in line in a grocery store and they had time to read the transcript. Uh, you, you would want them to get the same learning out of the transcript as they would have if they had watched the video. And that's, that's important, not just for learning preferences, but also for accessibility. There's gonna be somebody who can't watch the video and they need a screen reader to read it out loud to them. And so providing multiple formats of that, of that same learning benefits everybody. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that we've found in the last year is we're using videos to help our students pick up the skills that they need to actually use the modules. So we've encouraged faculty in each of their modules to have a video where they basically themselves scroll through the, the materials and talk about the skills that students will need as they work through those. And I think that that kind of high, heightened understanding of how the end user is going to actually work through the materials or the best practices for that and helping students to understand like how they can learn better is a really neat meta way to do it that these new systems really afford to us. When I think about what the, I started teaching in 1990 and as a graduate assistant, and I was in one of the first um, computer classrooms in the country because Purdue, where I did my doctoral work, um, you know, had really bought into the technology aspect of, of that. And I remember just the, like the internet had five things on it. And the biggest thing you could do would be to walk behind and watch a student working on their paper. And that was about it. To where we are today, it's amazing the changes that have happened in education because of technology. And I think that, you know, we're, I think we're past that point where people are saying, oh, technology, I'm here to teach history. And our historians are saying, hey, did you know you can create these timelines and do all this really cool stuff? And so I, I think that we're, we're headed to a really good place. Our, our, our biggest challenge, and it's not our challenge, it's the challenge of our administrators, is making sure that everyone has good access right, to, to the technologies, whether they're on campus or are, are from, you know, learning from afar. I think that's the challenge. But as far as the what we can do, um, it, it feels almost limitless. It's really exciting. Yeah, one of the things that we're finding, Gwen, is um, students are doing more online coursework from their phones. 
So whereas when when I was a master's student in the late, um, you know, between 06 and 08, everybody pretty much still had desktop computers. There wasn't a whole lot of even laptops yet. And um, the last decade has pretty much been the laptop dominated. And then like the tablets were kind of like, hey, this isn't loading on my tablet. Uh, now technology is getting into the spot where it can reformat what they're seeing based on what, what device they have. And a lot of students are doing their stuff on their phones. What that means for us as teachers is if we're acquiring a Word document, they're probably not gonna be able to do it on their phone unless they've got some kind of Word app on their phone. Uh, you want to be able to give them their assignments in a format where the technology that they're using can fulfill the requirements. And you can't always guarantee that everybody's gonna have Microsoft Word, for example. Yeah, you know, our university offers it for free on our systems. You know, they can go into the email system, they can use it. But what's what's fascinating to me is the, the challenges that that brings to those of us who teach in the humanities, because for instance, I teach comic studies. It's very difficult to study a comic spread on a phone. And it's, it's so you're right, Nick. I mean, this is a, a big challenge. Um, a lot of students are composing and reading and writing in this little space. They must have wonderful eyesight, that's all I can say. But, but also it does, it has some really, it's, it's an interesting set of implications. That's why, you know, I've, I've always felt that at the very least I'm holding up my little iPad here. This at least is a size that, you know, then you can really start to do work. So it's both something we have to take into account, but I think it's also something we have to be thinking about in terms of whether we want to encourage it, because I do worry about accessibility. It's, it's, it is possible to write a paper on a phone, but it also is questionable about the quality um, and what students are missing out on with all the features that are in a in a um, document when you're sort of composing on with your hands on a keyboard. So it's it's tough, you know, we're, we're going through a lot of transitions and just trying to be the best resource for our students, but they also have to meet us a little bit um, in the middle too. And I think, but I think that that invisible need that a lot of our students have too, is something we have to really keep thinking about. Yeah, and I, I remember as an undergraduate, um, really focusing on graphic design and seeing all these job ads saying if you have flash experience or you know how to code in flash you're you'll get you know preference because i know print and i know web and this flash was like motion graphics and all this stuff well i'm getting emails from professors now saying i have these videos that were saved as a flash file and flashes does not work on modern browsers like flash has gone the way of the dinosaur and 20 years ago that was all the rage so all of that time I would have spent learning Flash would have been wasted at this point. HTML is still around and code people knew coding. Um, it's just amazing what, what, what you spend your money on in education, what you learn might not be around in 20 years. So from a base standpoint, learning how to learn and learning how to stay with trends and how to give effort to, to continue your, your career no matter what no matter what is in chic that that year that decade is um, is what's essential for you to do and that comes full circle with online learning you were teaching in a classroom last year well now you're teaching on a computer can you teach um, there are people that are just kind of meant to be online teachers like that they, they 
They're totally comfortable in it. It's effortless to them. They love it. They can do it from wherever they want. But then there's people that really, really, really just prefer teaching in a face-to-face class. And um, although I think face-to-face people could do it online, um, they might not have the same teaching habits, the same teacher presence. They might not know how to communicate their personality uh, in the online environment. And that's where a real challenge comes in with being an instructional designer. I usually tell people like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna record yourself and record yourself to a lecture, pretend that you're Bob Barker from The Price is Right. Embellish everything that you say and have spirit in your voice and you know, tell them what they've won. Um, it'll sound silly to you, but at least you're putting some animation in your voice and you're, you're not talking from a monotone. It's not like Bueller, Bueller, like people are going to channel out and not, and not want to watch your videos. So you spent four hours making a 15 minute video and nobody's watching it. So you need to animate yourself a little bit more, become a cartoon character of yourself to be more interesting to your, to your audience. So your students won't zone out when you record your lectures. Yeah. And, you know, I also think one way to, that, that we've helped our faculty, too, is to see how online learning has really advantaged our students who are shy, who are introverted, who are able to use the chat feature now. In fact, one of the things we're working on right now as a project is moving chat into the traditional classroom because we don't want to lose that feature. And so there are, I mean, I think it's both the, the incentive is there because I think faculty start to realize that once you put a lot of effort into an online course, it's easier the next time you do it and it just gets you know much easier. But there's also the incentive of students um, flourishing in the environment. And, and when faculty see that, I think it helps them to overcome some of that uncertainty because they realize, well, okay, I may not love this, but these 10 students who might not do anything like in terms of raising their hand in class are putting stuff over there in the chat and it's it's leading to a better discussion. So I think it's also just having the experience and that's really what the last year gave us. Everybody had the experience. They could see the pros and cons for themselves, not just by word of mouth. And I think that's been so helpful. Yeah, the, the allowance of technology in the classroom has been super valuable. I remember the opinion of many professors saying, well, I don't allow phones on in my classroom. I don't allow tablets or I don't allow laptops in my classroom. And um, I earned a PhD in educational leadership at Oakland University and they allowed us to have our, our laptops out. And I took all of my notes using uh, Google Docs and I've got Google Docs on my phone. Um, I still have all my notes from my PhD experience. How many people that took notes on paper throughout their entire education can say that they still have their notes. Um, I'll always have it. So if I'm in a bar and I need to explain to somebody that Harvard University was founded 16 years after the Mayflower landed, um, I can pull up that note on my phone and I can maybe win a bet or a drink. But um, it's, it's little things like that, that you, know, you are armed now full time with all of the notes you've ever taken. So if you can remember what you typed, you can pull it right up. Nick, what bar are you going to? <laughs> That's my question. You're not cheating at trivia nights, are you? <laughs> no. Okay, good. I'd like to, but we win anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it. Now I think that, like I said, the encouraging people to bring their technology and to preserve, you know, the notes that they've taken will pay dividends down the road. And also, just like I said, learning how to learn is important, but also becoming resourceful and becoming a good note taker. Um, I see, I, I've 
admittedly, I even see some professors, if I'm, if I'm training them how to use Moodle, I say, well, to add a, to add a file, you do this and you do that. And they, they might, they might write, just write down that they forgot this, they, they forgot step one, they skip right. And then they, they write like one word. And I'm like, if you ever come back to that note, you'll never know what to do. Like, cause you just, you know, and learning how to take good notes, effective notes that you can come back to whenever I used to write on paper, I'd scribble it. And I'd look at it later, be like, what the hell is this? I have no idea what I wrote down. I was destined to be a doctor one day. Um, I would just much rather type it. I can type faster than I can write. I can come back to it. It's legible. Um, encouraging people to be efficient note takers is almost worth its tuition in the bachelor's degree outside of any skills or outcomes. Like all, like I said, the ripple effect of this technology is really arming, you know, uh, our communities to be, to be better using technology. Wow. There's really so much here to unpack. And I, I feel like we should have a, uh, like a 50 part podcast series just on the things you guys have talked about so far. Like I said before, everything is resonating with me because this is the same challenges, the same approaches we take in any aspect of instructional design and learning development. Um, the final topic I want to get to here, um, you know, again, there's so much information. I'd love to keep asking questions and learn more here um, is, you know, in academic, the, the academic world, the goal is to pass the test, right? The, the goal on paper, and I know I, that might've been a very incendiary comment to say, but the, the, the goal in a course from the student perspective is they want to pass the test and finish the course to get the grade ultimately so they can graduate or whatever their goal in the program, where in um, kind of a corporate environment, tra traditional training environment, it's, I need to know this so I can go right to my job and, and start applying it or, you know, a behavioral change. So with evaluations in this sense, you know, has, has your, your group's been doing anything to focus on how to improve either assignments or evaluations or how to, you know, assessment to how to improve knowing that the students actually did learn that they'll able, they are able to modify their behavior in a sense with that information. Yeah, we, we've used this as an opportunity to, to begin engaging in a discussion about testing in general. Um, you know, the, the concern that many of our colleagues in fields where they do timed tests, um, very often either multiple choice tests or tests where students are not allowed to have any resources with them and are just taking the test. Um, we, we were able to, to help faculty to continue to do that and under this environment, but it also opened up some really profitable discussions that we've been having about how we can vary the ways that students demonstrate what they've learned. Um, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the multiple ways of learning different information It tends to stick with us if we learn something in a variety of different ways. And so I think one of the challenges for university instructional design is going to be um, coming, helping faculty to find um, ways that this technology will allow them to learn what students are learning um, in, in not more non-traditional ways and in, in a variety of ways rather than just looking at information dumping, right? <laughs> As faculty, we don't want to be doing that. Uh, we don't want our students to necessarily do that either because we, we studies will show, the science of learning shows that you don't retain things uh, as well using those sort of traditional means. So we have a lot on our plate in terms of thinking about, you know, new ways of assessing student learning. 
Yeah, the, the variety of assessments is one of the um, main pillars of online teaching best practices, whether they can explain something or present something is just as important, if more important than passing a test. Um, so what we do when, if a, if a professor has problems with students like cheating on an exam, we say, well, what are your outcomes in the course? What should they be able to do? And could they better exemplify that in a project where they present something to demonstrate their outcomes instead of just showing that they studied and they know what the right answer is. And that's a, that's a major consideration. And a lot of times the students learn from each other and that's called constructivism. They're, they're building ideas based on, on what everybody else brings to the table. So as the teacher in that situation, you're the guide on the side that's kind of guiding their, their learning, but they grow as a, as a group. Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch on is the way that universities work um, might be different than the corporate world because at a university, it's not just passing the test and getting the grade. Um, there's a term called a liberal arts college and people that aren't familiar with um, how universities work might think that liberal arts is a dirty word because it sounds political. Uh, liberal arts is not compared to conservative arts. It's, there's nothing political about liberal arts. What that means is that you are liberal with your learning. You, you learned a wide variety of things, whether it was philosophy, theology, um, writing and rhetoric. Um, but what, what people come out of with a liberal arts degree or whether they go to a, a liberal arts institution where they're required to take general education courses within that, they come out as a graduate being a better citizen, being a better contributor to their, to their society. And those are all undertones within their classes that they're taking. So um, at Oakland University, student success is our number one, uh, our number one mission. And part of that student success is having the graduates come out as leaders in their community with something to contribute outside of their major because they learned, um, they learned these things. Um, they see all sides to an argument, even though they, they might subscribe to an argument, they know what the other side is like and they, they understand the other side of an argument and how, how how, how rare is that these days where you, you talk to somebody that knows and can identify with both sides of an argument before subscribing to one of those sides. What you end up coming out with is a graduate who is better informed and they're able to um, make better decisions because of their ability to see um, many sides to an argument or many sides to, to how something works. And um, I would argue that in addition to the outcomes of a class, that most, most courses that I've been a part of um, at my institution really champion their ability to make their students better people. Right, and I think that, that that's the thing about instructional design. We're in a position to help our colleagues see the bigger picture and figure out where their course can fit into that larger mission. Um, and what's exciting has been in our workshop, seeing folks who are in more um, fields that are considered to be more pre-professional, like aviation or engineering, et cetera, um, who are, are eager now, I think, to get a sense for where their classes fit in with some of the other classes that are being taught on campus. And that's another big initiative of ours is creating that kind of space for dialogue among fields. And again, you know, the, the move to online has helped facilitate that because faculty now are talking to each other about 
techniques that they're using across disciplines and finding that some techniques that, that we thought were just specific to our field actually could be helpful to others. We've had a lot of that kind of interchange. Um, I learned a ton from a couple of marketing professors that I used in my classes in terms of group work and things like that. So I think it's that. I think, Mike, to sort of underscore what Nick has said, I think what we're really trying to do is to, to create that student who's a whole person, who's had a lot of exciting courses across a variety of subjects, um, because that's what their, their work world will be like. I don't care what a student does, even if they're being prepared to be a pilot. They have, if they've taken courses in ethics, if they've taken courses in history, they can put what they're doing into context and they can make decisions better. And I think so, so it's not just whether a student passes my test in my Disney Plus class that I taught last year, it's that they now have an understanding of how a corporation evolves over a, a century and, and ways in which that co corporation has profoundly influenced the culture they live in. And they're better thinkers, therefore. So when they encounter the next sort of big thing like Disney, they're going to ask different questions. Um, like, where did it start? How has it evolved, right? What, how has it influenced the culture? So it's, it's, it's encouraging students to ask those questions regardless of what they end up doing when they leave the university. At least that's the idealist in me really hopes that's what we're moving towards. I, I like that because it's almost as if the education isn't knowing the answers, it's, it's knowing the questions. That's great. 10 points to Gryffindor. <laughs> And I think that's a great uh, point to end the conversation. Unfortunately, we do have to, to, to end it at some point. Like I said, we could. I really want to sit here for several more hours, but we do have to move along. I do want to thank so much uh, our two guests today. Uh, Gwen Tarbox, Professor and Director of the Office of Faculty Development within WMUX. Nick Bongers, Senior Instructional Designer at Oakland University. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. It was great. Each month, the ATD Detroit Board of Directors would like to share a book that we've been reading. This month, we've got Map It, the Hands-On Guide to Strategic Training Design by Kathy Moore. Change your mindset on how you approach training programs. Learn how to look for real business needs and use action mapping to focus your designs to transfer the information that's actually needed with less filler and fluff. Think about knowledge checks and assessments in a different way by learning how to write challenging questions that truly show that your learners can apply their new knowledge. Whether you're an in-house designer or lead the life of a consultant, Kathy Moore offers something in her book for everyone to bump up your talent development effectiveness. One of my personal takeaways from the book was re-evaluating how I talk to subject matter experts about the purpose of their training programs and the powerful behavioral change effect that can be had from effective learning programs. Map It, the hands-on guide to strategic training design by Kathy Moore helps you save the world from boring training. ATD in the D Today is produced by the Detroit chapter of the Association for Talent Development. Learn more about ATD Detroit at DetroitATD.org. The podcast is created with support from the ATD Detroit Board of Directors, with special thanks to production consultants Matt Nadolny and Nick Harmon. Have a question or a topic you'd like to hear on the podcast? Send it to president at DetroitATD.org. <laughs>